0: Stephen. You can be seated. You can open up your Bible to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 26. Today, in the middle of the summer, um, we're returning to our resolution for the year. Um, at the beginning of every year, um, preach what's called a resolution sermon for our church. It's preceded by uh, an extended time of reflection and prayer. I really just asked the Lord, Lord, what would you have the people of Mosaic kind of focus and dwell on over the course of this year? And I spent some time just seeking the Lord's face and trying to listen to his voice and praying and seeking his word. And coming into this year, it was quite clear. And we work it into our benediction, which we conclude our services with each week. Every week we end our services with a prayer of blessing and sending together. And this benediction, it's a way of remembering our resolution as a church for the year. And so I want us to return to it today, just for today. We'll go back to the Psalms next week. I want us to remember it together. Our resolution for 2022 is this, to be a people marked by the fruit of the Spirit. To be a people marked by the fruit of the Spirit, a people who practice love in a world of hate, who embody peace in a world of anger, who embrace joy in a world of apathy, to cultivate patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, even when it's costly. And as I spent time praying and reflecting this year, it was clear to me quickly that God was moving my heart to focus on our life together as a church and as a church family. So why are we coming back to it today? We've, we've, we've returned to it a couple of times now because it's good to remember it's good to remember after the rush and speed of the beginning of the year and the spring, it's good for us to return and ask ourselves, how can we become a church family who are abundant in the fruit of the Spirit? How can we become a church family who are abundant in the fruit of the Spirit? Today, I want us to focus in particular on three fruit of the Spirit. We're going to focus on love. We're going to focus on patience then we're going to focus on self-control. Now, why did I pick out these three? Is it because I think that you need to hear about these three in particular? Is this a passive-aggressive sermon um, that's colored by our conversations? No, I picked these three because they're the three I struggle with the most. And I figured it'd be good for me and the Lord to dialogue on it together, and maybe you'll find some profit in it as well. So let me read Galatians 5, beginning in verse 16, going through verse 26. Verse 26. Afterwards, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. The reason we do that is to give thanks for God's word. He hasn't left his people in silence. He's spoken. You're invited to respond, thanks be to God. Let me read Galatians 5, beginning in verse 16. But I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other are not to be diced out. This is a bouquet, okay? It's a cornucopia. How'd you like that, right? (laughs) Right? We're not supposed to take kind of pick and choose. The fruit of the Spirit isn't like walking through Tom Thumb and being like, yeah, the apples look good right now, but the watermelon's not so much. It's not how the fruit of the Spirit works. And I don't want there to be any confusion that in my identifying of these three, what I'm telling you is that we should privilege any one of them over all of them. In many ways, most scholars are convinced they're interdependent. And I think that's pretty clear, right? You move kind of any one of the fruit of the Spirit out of the equation and the whole kind of Jenga tower of the fruit of the Spirit, it's going to be shaky. You need all of them to really meaningfully engage in any of them. But I wanted to identify these three today because they're the three that I struggle with the most. And it's a little bit of a vulnerable thing to tell your people that you struggle with something. It's particularly vulnerable to tell them you struggle with love, right? You don't want your pastor telling you that he struggles with love. But I do. And in particular, I struggle with the kind of love the Bible's talking about. And I think that maybe many of us do because the kind of love that the bible's talking about is not really defined by what we often think of about love when we think about love. So let's just dig into it a little bit here, okay? Paul is exhorting the church in Galatia. He's exhorting a church that has endured a couple of things. One, division is happening, and in particular, division is happening because of a group called the Judaizers. The Judaizers have entered into the church at Galatia, and they're causing some disruptions. And the key disruption is this. The Judaizers are telling the Gentile Christians, you basically have to become a cultural Jew, namely through circumcision, in order to be a follower of the Jewish Savior, Jesus. So the Judaizers are kind of creating some disruptions in the church in Galatia. And the church in Galatia, like many of the churches in the New Testament, and certainly like our churches today, and including ours, are struggling with all manner of temptation, right? The temptations that are ever-present, the temptations that he identifies, what he calls the desires of the flesh, the works of the flesh, things like sexual immorality, impurity sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So Paul is identifying for the church in Galatia, there are many temptations, some of which you're falling into. Maybe the, 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 the desire to indulge in some of these temptations is, is exacerbated by the division that already exists in the church. That as the church loses its credibility in Galatia, maybe young believers are finding themselves more prone to say, well, I'll just go back to what I was doing, right? I mean, this church really isn't so different from not being in the church. And I think you can make some of the same criticisms of the church today, that there is often a kind of hypocrisy that's a double bind in the church because you expect it to not be there. In the church in Galatia, it was there. And so maybe some believers, young believers, are struggling. Should I really keep the faith? If keeping the faith means living like this, divided, at odds with one another, battling each other. So there's a tension at the church in Galatia. But Paul doesn't commend to them, hey, these are the works of the flesh, stop doing those and all of your problems will be solved. He commends to them virtue. And these virtues are the fruit of the Spirit. And we're going to come back to that concept of virtue in a second, but let's begin with love. 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 When we think of love, we almost always immediately associate the word with feeling or with a feeling. And even when we're trying to avoid associating the word love with a feeling, the muscle memory of growing up in our culture kind of almost immediately associates it with it. Because we swim in the waters of emotivism. And that's been the case for a long time. This kind of culture of emotivism is really a culture that says, hey, whatever you feel is true must be true, or how you feel must be the most defining thing about you. And so if something's going to be genuine or real, you must feel it deeply. That's emotivism. And many people will base their whole lives consciously or unconsciously, on this engine, the engine of emotivism, the engine of just kind of operating in accordance with the felt desires of our life, with how we feel. I don't really feel like doing that. That doesn't feel authentic to me. That doesn't feel true. I don't really feel loving towards this person. I don't really feel like this. And that kind of feeling engine drives life in our culture and has for some time. But love, at least the word that's used here for love, is not a word that would be best associated with a feeling. The Greek word that stands behind this is a word that maybe you've heard before. It's agape. It's agape love. And this word is unique to Scripture in that it is used throughout Scripture with particular reference to God's love. Now, let me tell you some good news. God's love is not primarily a feeling. God's love for his people is is not fundamentally a feeling. Feelings are fickle. And even if God's love was primarily a feeling, it would be perfect, it would be unchanging, it would be immutable, it would never be affected. But God's love is not primarily a feeling, God's love is primarily a covenant promise. There's a faithfulness, not a feeling, that drives the love of God. It's a commitment, it's tied into the very character of God when Scripture says that God is love, it's saying that it is the nature of God, love. God is love. It's more than a feeling. God's love isn't based on a feeling. It's an expression of his nature. And this love, it's unconditional. It's unconditional. Maybe a better way and this is from David Pallison, and a counselor. Maybe a better way of thinking of God's love is not that it's unconditional, but that it's contraconditional. It's contraconditional. It's not just that we don't deserve it, it's that we've done things to definitely not deserve it. This love is Contra-conditional, it's incongruent. It doesn't fit. We're not the just recipients of God's love. It's not what we're owed. It's not what we're entitled to. We don't deserve it. And we often think about God's love as not coming with strings attached. That's true in the giving. But the intent of God's love is Transformation. God gives an incongruent love, meaning you don't deserve it, you can't earn it. When God grants it, he grants it with the expectation it's going to change you. It's going to change you. It's going to transform you. This love of God isn't rooted in a feeling. And so the love that Paul is commending as a fruit of the Spirit to the church in Galatia, it must be more than a feeling. He lists this word here and he showcases it with priority status. It's the first of the fruit of the Spirit and it gets a long exposition in 1 Corinthians 13, which if you've ever been to a wedding, you've heard before, uh, right? Love does not envy or boast. It doesn't do all these things, you know. This incredible exposition of love in 1 Corinthians 13, the priority status here and the fruit of the Spirit. There's a case to be made that you can read all of these other fruit, all these other virtues through the prism of love. If you were gonna read any of them through the prism of any one of them, it would be love. The love of agape love. A love that loves incongruently. A love that loves disproportionately. And we have to strive for this kind of love. We do, not just because our culture has engineered us to think about love differently, but because our hearts are inclined to think about love selfishly. Right? So there are some circumstantial things that make living out the kind of love that God shows to us difficult because it's not the way that our world thinks about love. But there are also some indwelling things that make living out this love hard. It's sin. It's the impact of sin. Even after we have been placed in Christ Jesus and given a new heart, no longer a heart of stone, a heart of flesh, even after we've experienced the grace of salvation, it can still be hard to love the way that God loves us. Jesus tells the disciples, they're going to know you by the love that you have for one another. Why is that such a winsome and persuasive witness to the love of God? Because it's a love that should be uniquely showcased in the church of Jesus. Our love should look different than the loves of the world because it's rooted in the love of God. And his love is not of this world. It's a different kind of love altogether. Our love is unique when we root that love in God's love. It's the kind of love that we hear about in 1 John 4. For the Christian, when we are asked, why do we love each other even when it's hard? Why do we love our neighbor even when we disagree? Why do we love our enemies? We say, because God first loved us. That's the Christian answer to love. What is the motivation for Christian love? The love of God. The love of God. Now you can try to life hack your way into that love and it won't work. You won't. There are many kind of false ways of thinking about love that are trying to sell themselves to you as a very kind or unconditional form of love. In the last 20 years or so, certainly the watchword for the kind of cultural analog to unconditional love is tolerance. It's tolerance. Now tolerance is a fine enough word when used appropriately, but nobody really dreams of being tolerated. That's not really what we hunger for. It's not what we desire. Tolerance isn't really a good substitute for love. It's faulty, you know? It doesn't work. It's not what we desire. Love is not pure acceptance, another word that often has incredible cachet and usage. It's not just pure, unfiltered acceptance because love challenges Love steps in to confront when something is harmful. So love is not tolerance, it's not acceptance, it's different love. This agape love is unique and we should find ourselves sometimes, we should not be surprised when people outside of the church think that the way we talk about love doesn't sound very loving. I would imagine to ears that are trained to listen to love in a different key, it probably sounds off. The real question is, what is the substance and the grounding of love? And for the Christian, we think it's the love of God, and the way that he loves should shape the way that we love. I want to highlight one particular time in our lives, and if you haven't been through a season like this, you will be, I want to highlight a particular time in which it can be hard to love, in which agape love is needed but often abandoned. And that's when someone is undergoing a significant loss, trial, or battle that we haven't experienced personally. You ever, you ever feel that it can be hard or uncomfortable to move towards someone with love when they're going through something you haven't experienced? It can be. There, we, sometimes there's a humility that characterizes that, which is good, that we don't want to presume, that we know their whole experience. That's a good thing to do. You want to enter in humbly. But I think sometimes that desire... To enter in humbly can keep us distant from the person who needs love because we, need, we don't know how to step in. We don't know how to administer that love. Our staff spent time with Pastor Rob Daniels of Christ Freedom Church in Louisville this past week and he was recounting the last couple of years of his life when he went through something that many people don't experience. He had a cousin who was brutally murdered. And it was an incredible tragedy. And he serves as a pastor of a church And he was talking about in this time, he was like, nobody in my church knew how to move towards me in love because that experience was just very different from their own. And he's like, I didn't blame them for it. It's just nobody had ever showed them how to enter in with agape love when somebody was enduring something that you didn't know anything about. It requires wisdom, but it also requires courage to enter in with agape love and to say, I want to be honest with you. I don't know what that feels like, but it must be hard. And I want to be with you in whatever it is. That requires a a wisdom, certainly, a humility, and a courage to enter in. But I don't just want to draw our attention to love. I also want to draw our attention to patience. 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 One of the expressions of love is patience. Patience can really be understood as steadfastness or long-suffering. No, we don't we don't like that one. <laughs> right? Because here is where I really feel the friction of God's word. You know, sometimes God's word is like smooth silk, it comforts, but there are other times where it's like sandpaper and it confronts. And the fruit of the spirit of patience is sandpaper for my heart. It is. It smooths away the rough edges of my heart because out of all these fruit of the spirit, patience is the one that's least developed in me. I struggle with patience. I can be deeply impatient, not just with good things, but with bad things. Not just with things outside of my life with God, but things inside of my life with God. I I am impatient. It's one of the dominant sins in my life. I don't know if anybody else can resonate with this. Maybe you're sitting next to somebody and you're like, they can resonate with that. (laughs) This word is most commonly used in the New Testament to refer to the patient endurance of wrong without anger or taking vengeance. The patient endurance of wrong without anger or taking vengeance. But do you know what? Do you know the times I feel most impatient? When I feel hurt, when I feel deprived, when I feel let down, when I feel like something's not delivering on an expectation. So the word here, patience, is speaking specifically to that moment of enduring wrongdoing, unmet expectations hurts, wounds, desires going in the wrong direction. Patience is usually refined through great seasons of trial or challenge. It's so hard for me to be, as James says, quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Maybe you feel this too. The development of patience happens in those times. Kids, let me talk to you for a second. Because I know that when you were a kid, because I was once a kid many decades ago, I was a kid and I know that it can feel like things take forever. That things are always really long and it's really difficult to wait with joy. That's how we talk about patience in our home, to wait with joy. I know it's tough to do that when there's something that we want that we don't have yet or something we wanna do that we're having to get to. I know that it takes a while, but patience is like a flower. It's gonna grow in those times. All of those seasons of waiting, I'll tell you this, they're formative for you. They're shaping you. They're developing in you something that you'll need for the rest of your life. The people that you'll want to grow up to be like are people who have had patience formed in them and usually not the way they wanted. So when you think about the hero that you would want to be, or the kind of teacher that you've had that you really like or respect, or something that your mom or dad does that you really appreciate, nine times out of ten, they became that person through seasons of enduring patiently. And so I know it feels worthless now, but trust me, it's valuable in the long run. It's valuable in the long run. And it raises the question, how do we grow in patience? Well, and this is really applying to all of the fruit of the Spirit because the fruit of the Spirit are virtues. Paul was very acquainted with Greek philosophy and at this point in the history of the world, Greek philosophy had introduced this concept of virtue. Virtue. It was a way of thinking through ethics of what was right and wrong and how to make good decisions. Virtue ethics is not really interested in making kind of these uh, binary black and white choices about what's right and wrong. Virtue is more about you becoming the kind of person who can live wisely who can live well. Virtue theory is a lot more adaptable and flexible to the gray matter of life. And Paul would have been certainly conversant with virtue ethics. And you might wonder, why does this matter? Well, because oftentimes we think about the fruit of the Spirit as something that merely God could like turn on or turn off in our life. Like, oh, he just flipped the uh, flipped the, the switch and now I'm more loving, more joyful, more patient, more kind. God, would you just flip the switch? Would you just flip the switch? And certainly, we should be under no illusion the fruit of the Spirit is principally wrought by who? The fruit of the Spirit spirit, is principally wrought by who? The Spirit. Whoo! We're going to need some help. The Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is the fruit of the work of the Holy Spirit. They are produced by the Spirit as we seek to practice them through testing as we seek to practice them through testing, to implement them, to to do them, to let them work out into our lives and our habits. And Bruce Almighty, you didn't think you were gonna get that, did you? (laughs) Morgan Freeman, who's playing God in the film, asked Bruce, and I'm not endorsing the movie, just just wanna say that, okay? (laughs) Morgan Freeman, who's playing God in the film, he asked Bruce, if someone prays for patience, do you think God gives them patience? Or does he give them the opportunity to be patient? If he prayed for courage, does God give him courage? Or does he give him opportunities to be courageous? If someone prayed for the family to be closer, do you think God zaps them with warm, fuzzy feelings? Or does he give them opportunities to love each other? In this movie, which I'm 100% not endorsing, you get a brief moment of insight in this exchange which is that many times God invites us into a space to put into practice the fruit of the Spirit. And in so doing, he grows it deeper and wider in our lived life. And this brings me to the last fruit of the Spirit. Because if love and patience weren't difficult enough, Paul ends with one that certainly challenges our impulses, which is self-control. Self-control. Now, interestingly, while the previous two words, love and patience, have unique usage in the New Testament, the Greek word for self-control was in wide use in the Greek philosophy and literature of the ancient world. By the time that Paul uses this word, it was a central concept in many worldviews and ethical systems of most Greek peoples. So what is it? because Paul is adapting this word. He's pulling it out of the context in which most of his audience would have been familiar with it. What is it? Well, self-control is restraint. Self-control is holding back the passion and the fervor with which the desires of the flesh sometimes strike. Have you ever been gripped with an overwhelming desire to do something? Have you ever been gripped with an overwhelming appetite for something? Yes, You have, you have been gripped with this. Self-control is the practice of learning what to do when you feel that desire rush to the surface. It's about learning how to practice restraint. It's about learning when to say no to the wrong things or even to the right things at the wrong time so that you can say yes to the right thing at the right time in the right place. Self-control is restraint. Self-control is denial. Self-control is self-denial. And honestly, as we age into the winter of the global west, we are finding out that self-control, which had been a dominant theme in the Greek world of this time, is certainly now one of the more countercultural of the values and virtues listed here. Because it presumes that you understand that you are not always the best judge for who you are and what you should be doing. Now, I don't know if you've been paying attention to the world you're living in. I don't know if you watch how commercials sell their products to you or if you pay attention to that kind of thing. If you watch the kind of heroes that are lifted and foisted upon the covers of magazines and the talk shows, but self-denial is not a defining value. It's not a cultural thing anymore that carries any kind of capital. The idea of saying no to oneself is almost not just seen as not a virtue. It could possibly be seen as a great injustice towards your life. You should not say no to you. You are you. You belong to you. And you should say yes to you at every possible turn. That's in our system more than we would care to admit. And it's certainly in the world in a pervasive way. The Bible presumes that you've bought into the story that you actually don't belong to you, that you don't think that you are your own, that you don't think that unmitigated radical autonomy is the best thing for you. And so in that way, it's commending something to you that it thinks will be good for you long-term and that I think will be good for you long-term and good for me long-term to practice moderation, to practice wise judgment, to practice purposeful living, and yes, to tell ourselves no. We can't be that. We can't have that because we don't get to determine what's right and wrong. We don't get to determine who we are. We don't get to determine how God created and designed and runs the world. Those things are not subject to change. They're not subject to interpretation. God has laid a course in front of us and has invited us to walk it faithfully. And in that way, self-control is an anti-cultural value. It's going to put you in friction. If you begin to practice serious self-control in your life, you are going to be swimming against Silicon Valley, which is the most formative, powerful presence in the global West today. Everything has been engineered. What you have in your pocket is a great weapon or a great tool, but it has been engineered for you to not practice self-denial. So you're gonna swim against Silicon Valley. You're gonna swim against the market. Well, those, those are two pretty big forces. I don't know if you know that. You're going to swim against the cultural values. You're going to. You're going to swim against power. You practice self-control. You're basically saying, the game is up. I see it. And I'm not going to live in the flow of it any longer. It's going to make you odd. It's going to make you weird. You are going to stand out in ways that are uncomfortable for you because it would be much easier for you to just go along with the flow. And that's basically what the powers that be would have you do. Self-control is a value that we all need to learn, me most of all, right? There's big self-control, there's small self-control. And God is inviting us into both the big and the small practices of it that it would form in us. Self-control is not a practice that we do just to live this kind of ascetic lifestyle, this kind of stoic lifestyle, this kind of I'm distant and detached from all things. We practice self-control so that we can say no to the wrong things, the bad things, so we can say yes to the good things. And do you know what God's good things do? They humanize you. Do you know what the world's bad things do? They dehumanize you. You wanna live fully alive? You're gonna end up saying no to what almost everybody else calls living fully alive. That's the spoiler on the story. Our resolution is to be a people marked by the fruit of the Spirit. And listen, I've preached these to you not because I've got an agenda for you, but because I think God has an agenda for me, which is to grow in love and patience and self-control, to be a person who practices love in a world of hate, peace in a world of anger, joy in a world of apathy. So what does this mean for us? What does it mean for us? Every time I've come back to our resolution this year, I've identified three temptations facing us right now. And if you've forgotten them, write them down again, because I think that when you really reflect on them, you begin to see them everywhere. The first is, we live in a culture of reactivity. We live in a culture of reactivity. We live in a culture of apathy. A culture of apathy. And we live in a culture of immorality. It's not too totally dissimilar from the church in Galatia, but patience. Patience allows us to oppose a culture of reactivity. Patience is a virtue that allows us to be willing to be long suffering, to be steadfast, to hold the course. Patience allows us to be a people who, in a culture of reactivity, say, I'm going to be quick to listen, and slow to speak, and slow to anger. You want to oppose a culture of reactivity? You must ask and practice the virtue of patience. A culture of apathy culture of apathy. Love stands in opposition to a culture of apathy because it's a willingness to lean into love even when it's inconvenient, even when we don't feel like it. To enter in to love of neighbor, to love of God, to love of our family and our friends and our household in a way that cuts against the indifference and the apathy and the resignation of I just don't feel like it. So love stands in opposition to a culture of apathy. And then lastly, self-control stands in opposition to a culture of immorality because it's a willingness to live with wisdom, to live with restraint, to live with purity in a culture in which it says, you can really do you in whatever that means as long as it doesn't harm anyone else. But a culture of self-control is going to say, no, there is a wise way There is a way of restraint. There is a way of holiness and purity, and I want to pursue that, even if it means I'm walking against the currents. God wants to form in us the fruit of the Spirit, and He's inviting us into a space to practice it. That space is the church. That space is Mosaic Church in Richardson in 2022. This is the time and the place that God has invited us to practice the virtues He's commended, prayerfully asking all the while, Spirit of God, Would you root these things deep into our life that they may produce abundant fruit? That's my prayer for me. I invite you to pray for me as well in that. And it's my prayer for you that we would be a people marked by these values in an age where they seem to be not merely diminished but opposed. It will require an act of grace. It will require the power of the Holy Spirit. And it will require, as Eugene Peterson said, a long obedience in the same direction. May God grant it to us. Let me pray for us. Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace and mercy. We ask, God, that you would make us a people who are abundant in love, in patience, and in self-control. And we pray that we would be a people who live fully alive because we live in your ways. God, we know that the enemy would have us to be deceived, to be deceived that we cannot be fully alive if we live in your world and your ways, but he does not know. He is a deceiver and has been one since the beginning. I pray that we would hear those lies as they cross over the corners and the edges of our heart, that we would make no agreements with them and that instead, a thundering over it, the kind of thundering voice that, as the psalmist says, breaks the cedars of Lebanon, we would hear your word telling us love, joy, peace patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, and all these things by grace, through the beloved love of the Father in Christ, by the powerful working of the Spirit. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Would you stand with me as we receive...